The sermon text this morning is from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Well, we're concluding this morning a uh, brief series on prayer and fasting. If you were here last week, you heard Tom explain that we'll be uh, setting aside or devoting the second Tuesday of each month this year to fasting together as a church. Uh, When we do that, we'll focus our attention each month on a different aspect of loving God's glory, God's people, or God's world. And uh, we'll try to give you some scriptures to focus on and some, some thoughts to focus that time of fasting for you. If you weren't here last week, you may have missed this past Tuesday, the second Tuesday of January. But of course, you're welcome to participate any day that you'd like this month. And there are some, uh, some resources on the blog that you can look at to participate in that. As we uh, wrap up this series, then, my hope today is to tie together prayer and fasting with missions. And so we'll begin in Acts 8, talking about the earliest progress of belief in Jesus. And then near the end, we'll turn to Acts 13, which shows the next phase in that progress. And, uh, and we see there also the critical role of prayer and fasting. So I'm hoping to bring together those two things and, and the role that they play in, in the book of Acts. I know we're just dipping into Acts today, so let me help you catch your bearings. Um, The book of Acts records the early life of the Christian movement. So the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the story of the life and work of Jesus. And the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is the story of the early church. It's focusing on the movement of the apostles, but really uh, showing how God uses the church to spread the story of Jesus to all the nations, how God gets the gospel to people. It's the story of the church uh, being unleashed in the world to go and do their work, which is carrying the good news of Jesus to every last nook and cranny among humanity. So at the beginning of this record, Luke records the words of Jesus to the 11 disciples. That's the 12 minus Judas who betrayed Jesus. And 
This is what Jesus says to them. If you're open to Acts, you can look at this in Acts 1, verse 8. So right at the beginning of this historical record, Luke uh, gives us the words of Jesus, Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In that brief sentence, that commission, Jesus gives three fixed descriptions of all of his followers. These aren't the three points of the sermon, by the way, for those of you who are taking notes. Uh, He gives these three fixed descriptions, not just of those first 11, uh, but of all who would follow Jesus. And the first one is that they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then secondly, he says, they will be witnesses to the person and work of Jesus. So when he says, you will be my witnesses, he means that they should be witnessing, sharing their personal experience of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And then thirdly, they are, as followers of Jesus, are globally minded. So they are empowered as witnesses. And then Jesus says, in Jerusalem, which is right where they were standing when he spoke these words to them, and in all Judea and Samaria, which would have been um, the area surrounding Jerusalem, Judea being southern Israel, Samaria, kind of central Israel, and Galilee, north of that. So he's saying in this city and around it, and then um, beyond that to the end of the world. So these are like concentric circles. Jesus is saying the gospel will be moving outward on account of these witnesses. Collectively, the followers of Jesus are spirit-empowered witnesses to the end of the world. And then the rest of the book of Acts records the unfolding kind of fulfillment of that commission from Jesus. Those first disciples receive the Holy Spirit and they begin announcing to their fellow Israelites, the Jews right there in Jerusalem, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah deliverer that God had promised to Israel, that they had been waiting for. But he was a deliverer, not from Roman government, uh, but a deliverer of all humanity from sin and its consequences. So their witnessing was really just announcing this set of historical events, the life of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and then an invitation to all who hear this announcement to follow Jesus through death and into life. This is what witnesses of Jesus do. They announce his resurrection and invite people to follow him. That's what preaching is. That's the core of what I'm trying to do this morning, is to announce that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and that for all of us, that historical event stands as an invitation to follow Jesus through death into life. So these Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses are speaking of Jesus. Now what about that third part, globally-minded, this global expansion? Well, that's exactly what the rest of Acts records how this small group moves from these 11 men to a group of 50 in the upper room and then bursts forward into thousands believing and following this new teaching right there in Jerusalem and then eventually beyond. So this morning as we reflect on the dynamics of this early Christian movement, Acts 8 and 13 show us a paradigm that should remain true of Christians and churches today. So here are the three points for the sermon. Uh, They were scattered abroad, they were sharing the gospel, and they were fasting for the advance of the gospel. So they were scattered abroad. You see this in verses 1 through 3. Specifically in this case, they are scattered because of persecution. 
So verse one begins, and Saul approved of his execution. Referring back to the previous chapter and uh, the story of Stephen who was stoned, the first martyr of the church, and something about Stephen affected this man named Saul who observed um, that, that martyrdom. And he saw something in Stephen, the boldness of Stephen's preaching, the courage with which he faced death, that uh, deeply affected him, worried him. Even, even more than that, it radicalized Saul so that he becomes a zealous persecutor. So Saul and the other Jewish leaders then instigate this uh, persecution against those Jews who had begun to follow this new teaching. So that verse 1 goes on to say, And there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Then verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then it's almost like Luke gives us an example. For example, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Okay, so Jesus had said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. It's interesting, though, that the apostles to whom he said that actually stay in Jerusalem. And the witnesses in all Judea and Samaria end up being not the apostles, not the official leaders, but rather the thousands the crowds that had just over the recent months believed the preaching of the apostles. So this persecution ends up having a, a great sort of uh, expansion force for the gospel. Is This announcement, this good news, is forced or displaced out of its initial geographic container and spills over into the surrounding area. So the attempts of the Jewish leaders to suppress this movement, uh, to contain it, actually backfire tremendously. As Tertullian, the early church historian in the fourth century would later observe, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's not a strict law, but it's a pattern observable in history. Another person said, the wind increases the flame. We see this often, that in God's mysterious purposes, Persecution backfires. In 1950, the Communist Party in China expelled Western missionaries trying to uh, suppress or even erase Christianity in China. But after the final Western missionaries were expelled in the early 50s, uh, the vacuum of leadership left by all those Western missionaries leaving uh, was filled in by Chinese Christian leaders who stepped into those roles. And so the effect of this great suppression effort by the Communist Party in China was that the Christian church became indigenized, and that's when it really exploded. And estimates today are that, uh, you know, 50 years after this grand suppression effort, there are 70 to 100 million or more practicing Christians in China. And by the way, out of those uh, 637 missionaries forced out of China, 286 of them had been redeployed within four years to other places in Southeast Asia and Japan, taking the gospel even further. So what seemed like a disaster at first ended up having this kind of great gospel effect. I'm sure you've heard that in the news recently that the Communist Party in China is repeating uh, their kind of suppression efforts of religion, which is historically naive. The Communist Party in China today is ironically uh, repeating the same basic pattern that catalyzed the first Christian movement right here in the book of Acts. Persecution and propagation go hand in hand. But notice that this outward movement of the church is 
really the basic pattern that Jesus called for, whether it um, results from persecution or in a voluntary manner, this is the paradigm that Jesus has given us, that the gospel is to extend outward through these concentric circles, so to speak, with a centrifugal force that keeps pressing further and further out. Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They wouldn't have guessed that would happen by persecution. They certainly wouldn't have chosen it that way. But this is the paradigm that Jesus gives. Jesus calls us into the gospel so that we might take that message out to others. He calls you in to send you out. When Jesus first called the 12 disciples, the gospel of Mark, the, the very first call, the gospel of Mark says, and Jesus called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. And it remains the same for all followers of Jesus. He calls you in to be with him, to follow him, and then he kicks you out. And sends you out to do this very thing, to preach the words. Occasionally, uh, adult eagles will push their two-month-old eaglets out of the nest, 80 to 100 feet up in the air, forcing them to fly for the first time. That's kind of what Jesus is doing with the disciples. It's as if he's been spoon-feeding them for a time, and now there comes this point where he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And this is the pattern for all who would follow Jesus. We get in line behind him, we follow him, we are with him, we should be with him, and then go out and talk about him. So there's this persecution that results in scattering or or going out. And notice at this point in Acts, it's not the apostles who are going out. The small group of leaders, uh, the apostles, they were in hiding. It says the church in Jerusalem, they were all scattered throughout the regions except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. They went underground, perhaps in hiding. In fact, other than Peter, um, not a single one of the apostles is mentioned in Acts again after the first chapter. It's all the lay people. The crowds who just over um, the past couple months had been believing this message. So, you know, it's, it's, it's so new. They don't even have a name for this movement. It's just the way, the people who are believing this new teaching. These are the very ones who are scattered as witnesses. This is not an organized movement. It's chaotic scattering. They're trying to find a safe place wherever they can get to. It's not some mission plan that was approved and put into action by the leaders of the church. It was ordinary people taking every opportunity to share the gospel wherever they went. And this is how the gospel comes into new areas without planning or control. And so this story uh, describes the essentially missionary character of the church. We are a collection of Christians with the missionary spirit. I think it's helpful to reserve the word missionary to refer to people who cross boundaries, who maybe go overseas or who cross some cultural boundaries to share the gospel. And yet there is still a missionary spirit that we want to cultivate. I may be staying here, but I'm not staying silent. That we want to be speaking of Jesus in the places that he's put us. Remembering I've been scattered to this place by the good hand of God. 
Leslie Newbegin, a missionary to India who came back and was a, a leader in the global church, posed the question, what would a genuinely missionary encounter with Western culture look like? You could make that question personal. What would a genuinely missionary encounter with the places that God has put you look like? We want to develop this missionary spirit. And for some, that will develop into a missionary calling. But for all of us, we should have this sort of expansive concern for the places God has put us and beyond. John Stott said, we must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. So the movement of Christianity always has this outward dynamic, at times forced uh, by opposition and persecution from the surrounding culture, but always, as it is for us, it ought to be voluntary, radiating outward uh, from the places that God uh, has called us to. We are called in to the gospel to be sent out. So they were scattered abroad, but then we read, They were sharing the gospel. God used this persecution to scatter the Christians, and then those Christians scatter the good seed of the gospel in the places that they go. You see this in verses 4 and 5. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. For example, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ So this persecution may have seemed like a setback to the strategy at first. In Jerusalem, thousands had been uh, flocking to this message. But it was really no setback at all to the divine plan to extend the reach of the gospel into every place. As the crowds scatter because of the persecution, they go about preaching the word. And you see who's preaching the word here? It's those crowds. It's the lay people. You normally associate preaching, I would think, uh, with this kind of setting. You know, a a group of maybe primarily Christians gathered in a room and someone who's been trained to preach uh, does that week after week and stands up and explains the Bible to primarily Christians, though there may be non-Christians in the room. But in this case, we have a very different picture. It's lay people going about their daily business, now in new locations, announcing the good news. Guess what's happened? Announcing in these ordinary daily conversations, uh, you know, that's the context uh, for them sharing the content of the gospel. So who's doing the preaching? Not the apostles, but the new believers. If you're newer to Christianity or if you've just become a Christian, pay attention to this. It's actually new believers who are the driving force behind the first movement of Christianity. Sharing the good news is not an eventual step for a developed, mature Christian. It's a basic element of following Jesus. In fact, new believers are often in the best position to do this kind of personal witnessing. Guess who Jesus is? Guess what he's done in my life? Because new believers often have you know, a wide variety of relationships with non-Christians. For many Christians who have been Christians for a long time, you know, we've developed a lot of our relationships within the Christian community and find fewer of those opportunities that we should certainly be looking for them. The important point here is that preaching or announcing the good news is fundamental to being a follower. Everyone was doing it. Everyone was involved. So this was a kind of grassroots lay movement. 
One pastor said, never teach a person the Bible without having them share their faith at the same time. If you teach without sharing, you'll produce arrogance because the only people who care about how much you know is other believers. But when you go out and share your faith, you realize ministry is not based on how much you know, but how much you rely on the supernatural act of God to bring people to saving faith. Whether you're a new Christian with lots of relationships with unbelievers, or a mature Christian trying to be faithful with the few opportunities that you may have. We, we want to recognize this is a fundamental dynamic and be looking for these opportunities, not just to learn more of the Bible, but to share what we know in reliance on God to do a supernatural act, bringing someone to life and through faith. But what does this look like, this preaching the word? It says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They are announcing the word. And the word refers to what happened. They're telling the story. They're announcing the announcement. Wouldn't it be great to go back and listen in on one of those conversations to hear what that sounded like? Luke actually lets us do that a little bit. I think in the middle of chapter 8, he gives, so he's, he's talking about Philip who goes down in Samaria and proclaims Christ in the city, but then he gives an example of Philip uh, doing this in a kind of one-on-one encounter. He comes, Philip comes across the uh, Ethiopian government official and uh, the man is reading from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, reading the prophet of Isaiah. And Philip says to him, do you understand what you're reading? Very simple question. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I understand without someone to show me the way? Inviting Philip to show him. And then Acts 8 verse 35 says, then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. What a simple entry point. Now, of course, it won't work this way every time. You probably don't often run into people reading the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. But maybe you could be on the lookout for simple openings in conversation to say something really easy like this. Do you think you understand the Bible? Do you think you understand what Christianity is? Would you be interested in knowing more about that? I think I know a verse in the Bible that captures the heart of Christianity in a single sentence. Can I show that to you and explain it to you? It would be a very simple question, and yet maybe God would use a, an easy invitation like that as an opportunity to, for you to preach the word, to announce this good news. And so we should point out that this preaching the word that they're doing, this announcing the announcement, means announcing an event. Something has happened in the course of history that must be proclaimed. Jesus was dead, and then he rose again. If you read the sermons that are recorded or at least summarized in the book of Acts, you see the center of their announcement being that Jesus was the Messiah that Israel was hoping for and that this Jesus was raised from the dead, guaranteeing life to all who will repent of sin and believe in him. This is the announcement that we carry as Christians, the resurrection of Jesus. This is the most important aspect of the Christian message, and it's the right starting point in any culture at every time. You must start with the resurrection and invite people to believe that event and follow the one who was raised. 
This is how the church grows and spreads in the world. Uh, Christians faithfully announcing that event. Edmund Clowney observed, in the mission of the church, it is the word of God that calls the nations to the Lord. In the teaching of the word, we can make disciples of the nations. The growth of the church is the growth of the word. The growth of the church is the growth of the word. If the the church is to grow, it will be by this word being preached as it was here in Acts 8. It'll be through us announcing this word to more and more people. And the word grows as the people of Jesus faithfully announce his resurrection. He had said, you will be my witnesses. I think two of the biggest challenges to doing this are personal fear and cultural skepticism. One is personal, the other is cultural. The personal uh, obstacle or challenge is social fear, fear of rejection, ridicule, embarrassment, the fear of not fitting in. I think we've all been pretty accustomed to easily being able to be Christians and not really receive much opposition for that. Uh, Stacy and I moved into a new neighborhood uh, five months ago, and without discussing it or really even thinking about it, we just kind of assumed that we would be warmly welcomed by all of our new neighbors. We have secular neighbors, liberal progressive neighbors, nominally Christian neighbors, traditional conservatives, kind of the whole spectrum. And we were right. We have been equally welcomed warmly by all of them. We expect that. You know, we are hesitant to do anything that might ruin or hurt that acceptance or harm our image. As one person said, most Christians throughout the world fear the raised fist. Americans fear the raised eyebrow. Exclusion, uh, disdain, ridicule. You know, we, it's, it's as if we dread that. And we assume it's quite possible to be faithful Christians and never experience that. So that for the most part, we just don't expect opposition. Sure, we know Jesus said, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. But we assume the wolves won't bite. We expect that they won't bite. And yet, Jesus sets our expectations to believe that they will. He saves us from the wrath of God, but doesn't spare us from the wrath of man. There are two different Christian books published this past year, one called Irresistible, uh, Becoming the Kind of Christian the World Can't Resist, and the other one simply called Irresistible. I listened to the podcast with the authors, and uh, one of the things I thought was that, yes, we, we want to be a community of people who are so loving uh, that we're like a, a compelling embodied apologetic for the Christian message. We want our own lives to be that. We want this community of faith to be that. And yet, irresistible is just not the expectation that Jesus established for his followers. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I suppose there's a sense in which sheep are irresistible to wolves, but not quite the sense in which those authors are suggesting. So this, this personal fear of rejection is one that, that we have to embrace. We just have to kind of recalibrate our expectations for it, recognizing we're following the most rejected man in the history of the world. Acceptance happens here in this community. 
Acceptance happens in our relationship with God. But out there, rejection is what Jesus tells us to expect. And then uh, the cultural challenge is skepticism. We live in a secular age. Secular meaning uh, rejection of transcendence. So that when you're talking about the Bible, the primary lens through which many, maybe most people in our culture understand the Bible is through the lens of myth or legend or fairy tale. So when you try to talk to someone about staking their life on the Bible, it's bound to feel like you're asking them to believe something that everyone just knows to be false. There is no Santa Claus. The earth is not flat. There was no resurrection. These things are all equally rational for the secular person. So we we face this challenge of of secularism, and, and this situation calls for boldness, that we, w- we would not hesitate in the light of skepticism, but that we would announce the good news nonetheless. But boldness paired with a patient hospitality, welcoming non-Christians into your home and life, into your backyard and your dining room table, so that the beliefs of the Christian faith will make um, emotional sense, so to speak, as they see the effect of the Christian faith embodied in your life. And then, of course, this situation calls for dependence. You know, skepticism may be the cultural spirit, but it is no threat to the Holy Spirit's power to bring about new life, to bring about faith in those who are skeptics. This is his signature work. Paganism dominated the Roman Empire. Religious superstition dominated the Middle Ages. And skepticism has reigned since the Enlightenment. But the Holy Spirit has never stopped opening blind eyes to the gospel and bringing dead hearts to life. So as you face skepticism, walk into it with boldness, patient hospitality, and dependence on God's spirit to give life. And then look at the result of this gospel-spreading ministry that's going on in Acts 8. Verses six through eight, we read the crowds, as Philip preaches in the city of Samaria, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in that city. They receive his preaching, And his good works vindicate his message. And the result, the result there in verse 8 is there was much joy in that city. If you continue reading the account, there's a, a lot of opposition as well. But that doesn't change the fact that when the gospel is proclaimed by Christians and faithfully lived out in the Christian community, there will be much joy in that city. So Acts 8 shows us a movement of scattered infant Christians um, simply sharing or announcing that Jesus was raised from the dead. And this movement keeps uh, moving further and further out till eventually it comes to a city called Antioch. So listen, this is a few chapters later. Listen to uh, Acts 11, beginning in verse 19. Luke says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. 
But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So as this scattering migrates north, it comes to Antioch. Now, Antioch was the third largest uh, city in the Roman Empire, and it attracted people from all over. So one New Testament historian observed the Jesus movement shifts from a predominantly rural movement in Galilee to an urban movement in Jerusalem to a cosmopolitan movement in Antioch. This was a breakthrough moment for a fledgling movement. And you see what happened there in Antioch? The gospel had been scattering geographically, moving outward, but now it's crossing cultural lines as well. It had been just Jews talking to Jews. And now it moves to the Hellenists, to the Greek-speaking Jews, who would have had more than a few conflicts with the more conservative, traditional Hebrew-speaking Jews. And it's the Hellenists who will take the gospel to the Greek-speaking world. The gospel is progressing geographically and culturally and ethnically. And a couple chapters later, we get another snapshot of this church in Antioch as they are on the verge of another phase in this movement is about to unfold. So you see in Acts 8, followers of Jesus scattered abroad, sharing the gospel. And as we look at Acts 13, we see uh, we see them fasting for the advance of the gospel. So read again 13, one through five with me. Luke says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So they're on the verge of a new phase in the gospel going out. Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And that happened right away. And then he says, in all Judea and Samaria, that's what happens in Acts 8, which we just looked at. And here in Acts 13, Luke shows us the next de- decisive phase of the advance of the gospel. Uh, here at this church in Antioch, as it is about to carry the gospel to the end of the world, to the Greek-speaking world. Now, when the gospel moved into Judea and Samaria, it was forced, in a sense, as a result of persecution. But in Antioch, the gospel begins to move now to the end of the earth voluntarily as a result of the Spirit's leading and in response to the Spirit. And notice then the role of fasting for this congregation as they uh, gear up for this new work. There are two separate occasions of fasting mentioned here. They are fasting before plans are made, and then they are fasting again after their plans are made. And in both cases, the fasting doesn't occur alone. It says they were worshiping and fasting, and then after the Holy Spirit responds, they are praying and fasting. So fasting always has a a partner. It's never an end in itself. Its aim is to accompany and sharpen 
worship and prayer. As John Stott says, fasting is a negative action, abstention from food or other distractions, for the sake of a positive action, specifically worshiping and prayer. And the church in Antioch is an example of this dynamic. When we fast, fasting is not uh, merely cutting something out of your routine. It's really adding something into your routine, specifically prayer and worship, so that the fasting uh, points beyond itself to something greater, which is our dependence on God and our earnest desire to see his work. For the church in Antioch, fasting indicates these two things. First, their dependence upon God as they formulate a plan. They're in the planning phase. So before they know who's going, before they know where they're going and what they're to do, they are fasting and worshiping in dependence on God for some direction. And that is exactly what they get. Uh, Their dependent fasting is met by the Holy Spirit's direction. So they're fasting and worshiping, and then in response, the Spirit shows up and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So he calls two particular people, and then he gives them a specific direction, the work to which I have called them, which sounds vague to us, but they clearly knew the work to which they were being called. So fasting shows their dependence And then second, their fasting also demonstrates their earnest desire to see the plan accomplished. Now they have the plan, Saul and Barnabas, and they're to do what the Holy Spirit has called them to do. So once they know who's going and where they're going, they fast and pray again. Now they're in the commissioning phase. And they have this earnest desire for the plan to succeed. You see verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So Their fasting now on this occasion is related to the success of the plans that have been laid. And in both cases, God responds. They fast and worship, and the Spirit speaks with direction. They fast and pray, and that earnest desire is met by the reward of their labors. As you continue reading the narrative of this movement, you know, there again, there was suffering and opposition still ahead, and a lot of it. And yet, the gospel goes to the end of the earth. That's what Jesus had commissioned. That was the desire in their hearts. And that is, what, that is exactly what happens. So these are our brothers and sisters in Antioch from so long ago. Demonstrate for us the heart of fasting. We want to see God's spirit move. That's what fasting is about. And they are an example to us, not only of fasting, but in particular, how fasting relates to the progress of the gospel as that story unfolds in Luke's record here in Acts. Fasting demonstrates dependence on God as we lay plans, and it sharpens our desires for the accomplishment of those plans as we seek uh, for the gospel to go forward through the particular callings of various people. We want uh, this year as a church to fast together and toward the end of 2019 we'll focus our attention in fasting on loving God's world. We want to see God call more people from our body like Saul and Barnabas here in Antioch. 
more people who will voluntarily respond to the Spirit's leading to go out to new places and to do new work. If you were at the members meeting this past Wednesday, you heard Sarah Snow share about the desire that the Holy Spirit has given her to head back to East Asia or wherever else the Lord may direct in order to teach English and more importantly, to announce the good news of the gospel to more and more people. We want to emulate the church in Antioch in this kind of planning phase for her and Lord willing eventually in a a commissioning phase to fast and pray for the Spirit's direction and for success in this endeavor and for more people to join in this kind of thing, uh, going out with the good news of the gospel. Well, I've brought together uh, in these two passages two things that I know Christians feel perpetual guilt over, prayer and fasting and speaking about Jesus with non-Christians. I'm sure you all wish you were doing more on both these fronts, and I'm, I'm with you. I wish I were an inspiring model to you on these things, but notice that these believers in Antioch are not uh, sharing the gospel because they're guilted into it by a pastor. They're not uh, trying to meet evangelism quotas to report back to an accountability partner. They have encountered truly good news, too good to be true kind of news, and in joy, they are announcing that to others. This is what we want, that God would bring about in us hearts that are so happy in the hope of the gospel that we are eagerly kind of overflowing with this announcement, happy to share it in all the places that God has put us, even fasting and praying individually and collectively for opportunities and for success in those endeavors. This is what we look forward to this year as a church. We want to grow in these things. And so toward that end, we will uh, conclude the moment of silence that you might ask the Lord for grace in these things, and then I'll close us in prayer.